Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah faces a daunting challenge. We have the distinction of being both one of the driest states in the nation and one of the fastest growing. At the convergence of those two realities is the challenge of providing water for a population that's projected to nearly double by 2016, by 2060 rather, while maintaining strong farms and industries, healthy rivers, lakes, wetlands, and aquifers. This challenge is magnified by climate projections from the state climatologists that show a significant decrease in Utah's snowpack, which presently provides more annual water storage capacity than all of Utah's human-made reservoirs combined. That's uh, from a uh, new document uh, compiled by the Governor's Water Strategy Advisory Team. It's the recommended state water strategy. People have been calling it Utah's new 50-year water plan. And uh, that was recently delivered to the governor, who commissioned it about four years ago. It's been about a four-year process. We're going to talk about uh, all the ins and outs, the trade-offs. Water, of course, very, very important. And uh, we are bringing in uh, two of the three co-chairs of the Governor's Water Strategy Advisory uh, Team. We have us on the line, uh, Warren uh, Peterson, uh, who is with uh, Farmland Reserve. Warren Peterson, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for uh, for joining us. And uh, we also uh, have with us uh, Tim Hawks, who's with Great uh, Salt Lake Brian Shrimp uh, Cooperative, and he's with Utah House of Representatives, Republican from uh, Centerville. Uh, Tim Hawks, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. And we should mention that there is a third co-chair, couldn't be with us traveling at this point, uh, Tej Flint, who I've talked to a couple times on on this uh, program. Uh, let me start with, uh, perhaps I'll start with Warren Peterson. Uh, this has a, a, been a four-year process, now a document delivered to the governor. This is not the end of the process, I, I would assume. This is, uh, you're hoping to start a conversation, the ongoing conversation? Yes, Tom, that would be true, and the, and the document is really meaningless if we if we don't continue the conversation on, on a number of fronts. After all, water touches nearly everything we do, so there's a lot of different conversations that we'll need to have underway in order to make this meaningful. And uh, Tim Hawks, um, and I'll ask both of you, starting with Tim Hawks, and we'll get into the details after this, but uh, for your process, uh, a lot of ins and outs, public input, what what's the big takeaway so far that you've taken from this? Big surprise? Anything that really jumped out at you? Well, the big surprise may be there's no surprise. Um, <laughs> I, I think for many of us, it 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 kind of confirmed what we knew, which is water is extraordinarily complex. And I think perhaps the most remarkable thing after four years is that we could take such a diverse group of stakeholders and, and actually come out with a document where at one point, we thought there would be majority opinions and minority opinions and dissents and and everything else, and there was plenty of conflict. But at the end of the day, we had a document that everybody that participated was able to sign on to. Uh, I think that was a bit of a surprise, and I think that really strikes a hopeful note because it suggests if, if this group can agree uh, on something, then there's a hope. Uh, that we can agree as we move forward and face really these daunting challenges about water in the state of Utah. Warren Peterson, what a big surprise for you, the biggest takeaway so far? Well, I, I'm going to affirm one point Tim made, and that is that getting this diverse group of stakeholders together and have them come to a, a, a document everyone could agree on, um, it, it shows a pattern that we need to be using in as we have the water conversation, and that is that you you get a better product when you have everyone with every viewpoint represented at the table. 
and, and I agree that was that was a pleasant surprise that this was how well this group in, in the end came together and were, converged with their respective view, viewpoints and how all of those viewpoints came into the document and I think made a much uh, more nuanced, rich, better document. A couple of other items that were were surprises. One is that the we we worked with the Envision Utah process, the Your Utah Your Future process that had a lot of um, had a very extensive public survey, public participation survey, as well as some uh, scientific random random sample survey that uh, confirmed the results of the major survey. Two things came out of that. One is that water was ranked as the most significant issue among among the survey respondents. Overall, there were uh, some 52,000 people responded to that survey. Uh, we're not we don't have a breakout of how many responded specifically to the water section, but overall, the respondents ranked water as Utah's number one issue, even above education. The other thing that was a, somewhat of a surprise was that people have a strong, pretty strong feelings about water for agriculture how much agricultural production we should have, and, and a strong sense of wanting to preserve local agricultural production in Utah, even though Utah's certainly not one of the, the big agricultural production states in the Union. Before we get into some of the details, some of the recommendations, uh, let me direct this first to Tim Hawks. Um, it, it it is a daunting challenge. Quoting from the executive summary to the, the report, we have the distinction being one of the most uh, driest states in the East Nation, one of the fastest growing, expected double population to 6 million by 2060. Uh, so in, in broad strokes, do we have the water? It's a limited resource. Do we have the water to accommodate 6 million people? So I mean, the short answer is, yeah, if if you're just talking about enough water for people to drink, um, yeah, you probably have the water. Uh, what gets complicated, and I think this document does a pretty good idea of a, pr- a pretty good job of ad- addressing the trade-offs, is uh, it's not like there's a whole bunch of free water out there that's unused. All of every drop of water that falls in the state is used in one way or the other. And so when we talk about uh, future water supply, we're effectively talking about shifting from one use to another. That may have implications for the natural environment or for recreation or for other water users. Uh, and, and I think um, that's sort of the challenge. So, so raw, yeah, sure, uh, you put 6 million people in here and have enough water to drink, but could you have sustainable agriculture? Uh, could you have a healthy natural environment? Could you have a, a vibrant Great Salt Lake? Uh, you know, those are the much more difficult questions. So we we know that we have a supply of water. We know that it can vary dramatically year to year. Uh, and I think the complex question moving forward is how we uh, decide how to allocate the, the that water use in, 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 in sort of the best possible way. How can we dovetail uh, benefits where we get multi-sector benefits when water is used in a certain way. I mean, those are the those are the challenges, and I think I think we're getting there, but it remains a very uh, difficult and daunting task. Warren Peterson, it is 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 it a true trade-off uh, farms versus the urban areas? Sir, it seems to be uh, framed that way a lot of times, uh, and in the surveys, a lot of Utahns like the fact that we have agriculture. That's true, and it, it usually in the conversation it usually is set up as as a trade off, but there are some good things that agriculture does. That agriculture, 
I think would be surprising to some is probably as as uh, innovative and change motivated as any industry, and certainly in use of water, it's in a desert climate where we have to be very adaptive. So there there are some things we can do, but in in the end, plants require a certain amount of water, and our, the type of delivery system we use, the type of agriculture we use affects the amount of water used. So if we want a very capital-intensive agriculture where we use uh, controlled growth environments such as greenhouses and such, we, we can get by with less water. But will the market support that? So it, it's a very difficult trade-off in in both economics and in the amount of water. Hmm. I want to uh, now start ticking through some of the very important questions that are treated in, in this uh, document. We're talking about the recommended state water strategy. People are calling it 50-year water plan compiled by the governor's water strategy advising team. We have uh, two of the co-chairs uh, with us, Tim Hawks and uh, Warren Peterson. I'll direct this first to Tim Hawks. Uh, so this is a very important question. What is the role of water conservation efficiency in Utah? Seems to be on surveys, uh, the, the public could put this nearer at the top. So, yeah, I mean, conservation has to be a key, play a key role uh, in any strategy, water supply strategy moving forward. There's just no doubt about it. And uh, that includes uh, efficiencies and conservation when it comes to um, agricultural use, when it comes to uh, industrial use, and when it comes to just the way we use water in and around our homes. Uh, I, th- I think one of the challenges to figure out uh, well, what does conservation mean in a specific context? Uh, sometimes we'll see uh, sometimes conventional wisdom isn't isn't wise, uh, for lack of a better word. You, you'll, you'll hear people say, "Well, ag needs to get a lot more agriculture needs to get a lot more uh, efficient. They should be switching uh, from flood uh, to pivots." Well, you find that the pivots actually uh, tend to, to consume uh, more water. More is lost to evaporative uh, evapotranspiration. If uh, if, it, if it's more efficiently delivered to the plant, they can consume more water, and so you can actually get less water uh, downstream. So. Uh, again, complex question, but there's, there is no question that uh, conservation uh, has to be a part of and an essential part of our strategy moving forward. Mm. Uh, Warren Pearson, I want to, uh, to read this. This is responding to a report on this uh, 50-year water plan in the Deseret News. This is Humbug in Syracuse, who says, I have neighbors who water their lawn every day, every single day. Puts a period after every, every one of those. He said, we can't, can't afford that. Conservation, we have to have conservation. Um, Governor Levitt set a, a, a goal, 25% uh, less water used for municipal and, and industry. Seems like we're making pretty good progress toward that. And I guess Governor uh, Herbert um, renewed that. Yes, he has. And we are making great progress. Keeping in mind that you have to look at the different sectors of water use in Utah and the water use for our landscaping. We use as much water there as we do in in other so-called M&I uses, municipal and industrial uses. That's a fairly small portion of our overall water use in Utah. Still, when you talk about having water in our reservoirs and using it for the things we want to use it for, water conservation in that context is is very important. Hmm. But there if you'd like to go into it, there yes. are some more significant complex, you know, it's <clears throat> very significant complexities in water conservation. Yeah, let's, let's dive a little deeper there. It's it's uh, it's on our minds. Sometimes we do frame it, 
uh, or maybe I'm guilty of this as, you know, have a lawn or not have a lawn. There's, there's more to it. There is more to it. <clears throat> All of our major water conservation districts have um, <clears throat> conservation demonstration gardens that uh, open to the public. Uh, it's a free service. Go, go learn about the sort of things you can do to reduce water use in your outdoor environment, in your yard, while at the same time conserving water. But the other thing we need to look at is the, the overall water use. In, in the report, we talk about the amount of water that falls on Utah. So nature already uses about 94% of the water, that, and, and we divert the other six for all of our other activities, other 6% for agriculture, industrial use, municipal use, watering our gardens, and so on. But you, look at, you have to look at it from a system standpoint. In Utah, every, every river system we have in Utah, except for one little corner of Utah that's up in the Columbia Basin, we're in terminal river systems, meaning the water never gets to the ocean. So you, you look at the Great Salt Lake system, you look at the Bear River emptying into Bear River and then moving on down and, and, and into salt, into Great Salt Lake, Everything we do along that river system affects everything else that happens along that river system. And every time we take water and use it in a certain way, we're actually reallocating water. So when we, can, we say conservation, as Tim said, we need to make sure we define it carefully to know that water conservation at one point on a river system may just be stealing someone else's water right and may be harmful to the overall system. And, and a good example is, as Tim said, center pivot sprinkler systems evaporate 10 to 15% more water on average than other more efficient systems and, and things that look efficient like get away, say people say move away from flood irrigation, yet the return flows into the river system from flood irrigation, make up somebody else's water downstream or provide water for wetlands and animal habitat and so on. So you, you have to look at the overall picture when we're defining conservation on a grand scale. To finish this out, conservation of water delivered through pressurized irrigation systems or our municipal water systems, that's a winner. We have got to be more, even more careful, even more committed to that process. Tim Hawks, uh, where does conservation fit? Um, it, it's cited as very important. We've, we've talked about that in, in the framing it that way. Um, I assume we I'm assuming that's not the only thing, uh, but but where where does it fit in in terms of uh, priorities and in, in terms of of what we can save, um, uh, fitting it in with the other recommendations? Well, I think I, mean, I think there's a reason it comes first in the state water strategy, and that that's because it is the preeminent strategy and the most important strategy. Um, it's also the one that sort of touches on individuals most uh, most immediately and directly. And, and I, th I think folks have long uh, understood and appreciated that, though maybe not in, in, in quite the—I <laughs> don't want to say say the wrong way, but um, it's easy to oversimplify. So we, a lot of people say, hey, you know, don't don't you know, turn off the the faucet when you're brushing your teeth. Uh, maybe put a brick in your toilet so it doesn't require so much uh, water to, to flush it. Take shorter sh shorter showers, um, all of which um, make make sense and there are things that we should do but in terms of a water supply standpoint uh, the the reality is that uh, water that goes into a house uh, very little of it is actually consumed and the way that a water supplier or water manager would look at it, it's water in water out it gets it, it comes in it gets flushed out 
Uh, and so there's not a lot of water that's actively consumed inside that house. Uh, where we really see uh, water being consumed is, of course, in our landscapes. Uh, you mentioned lawns, and I think one of the luxuries we probably cannot afford is this notion of grass, turf, uh, Kentucky bluegrass from the edge of one edge of your yard to the other. Uh, one of the reasons we can afford it now is because water's very, very cheap. Uh, many parts of the state, we have secondary water where we pay a fixed fee, so there's no price signal to suggest we need to conserve. Uh, you know, if my neighbor, I, I joke sometimes, you know, feels like turns on water in April and, and turns it off in October. Um, and a lot of people can see examples of that. I was walking just the other night and could see cattails growing on the side of the road because people were using uh, so much water mm. on their yards uh, up above and it was seeping down through. So uh, some of those things is we, you know, we're going to have to have our secondary water metered. The biggest uh, challenge there has been technological, but as we get new technologies that allow us to meter secondary water, then you're going to have pricing signals associated with secondary water, and you're going to see changes in behavior. Uh, and then in the, you know, the ag sector, uh, we're going to have to uh, look at that too. There are, you know, drip is quite an efficient way to, uh, to provide water to plants. Uh, I think we could see some interesting things with uh, drought season, drought following uh, and, um, crop shifts and different things like that that we could see as well. So, uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's an absolutely vital strategy, um, both big picture and all the way down to just individuals and the way they use water. You mentioned price signaling. That's uh, been a hot topic on and off. Um, some say that we, we, we need to price water differently, and that would drive conservation. Yeah, and I think... I think there's no doubt that uh, that it does, that people respond to those price signals and will respond to those price signals. Again, if it costs you a fixed fee of 50 bucks or 70 bucks, no matter how big your lot is or how much water you use, um, nobody's going to get the price signal. Now, I will say what's interesting is it's not just price. Uh, Tage can't be on today, but one of the interesting things that Weber uh, Basin Water, Con- uh, water Conservancy District did is they put a test 1,000 households on these uh, these meters for their secondary water, they didn't change the pricing structure at all. They simply measured what they were using, and so they could see month over month how much they were using, how much they were using relative to what they did before, how much they were using relative to their neighbors. And they saw dramatic uh, savings in water simply by measuring it and showing people how much money or how much water they were using. That alone, without changing the pricing signal, uh, made made a really big difference. If you're able to replicate that across an entire system, that's a that's a big deal. And you say there are advances in secondary water metering. Yeah, I think the technology is getting there. Uh, it still remains quite expensive. I think about a thousand bucks a hookup. Um, but I think over time, as the good technologies come forward, those the pricing will come down, and we'll we'll see it implemented because we just we just have to to meet the demands as we move forward. Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we're talking about. Uh, Utah's recommended state water strategy compiled by the governor's water strategy advising team, advisory team. And we have with us uh, two of the co-chairs, uh, Tim Hawks and Warren Peterson. When we come back, uh, one of the things I want to talk about is a uh, uh, controversial uh, part, which has been included in the, in the strategy, um, water uh, pipelines and, and projects. So the, the Bear River project and the proposed Bear River project and proposed uh, Lake Powell 
pipeline project. We'll talk about much more as well, and we will include you in the uh, conversation. What are your thoughts? Um, are you uh, taking steps to conserve water? What do you think should be included in uh, Utah's 50-year water plan? What's in it that you perhaps uh, disagree with? 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, or you can reach us by email to upraccess at gmail.com. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, featuring community concerts in Logan's Tabernacle Monday to Friday, and celebrating 50 years at the Kane Lyric Theater and 25 years at Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. More information is available online at explorelogan.com. Pharmaceuticals and personal care products, or PPCPs, are finding their way into surface waters, and that presents a growing concern to Utah's water managers. Prescription drugs, over-the-counter medications, lotion, fragrances, soaps, insect repellent, cosmetics, laundry soap, all of these are considered PPCPs, and directly or indirectly, they swirl down the drain and into domestic sewage systems that are not designed to handle them. Environmental engineers from the Utah Water Research Lab are studying the sediments, plants, and sediment-dwelling organisms downstream of a wastewater treatment plant on East Canyon Creek to learn more about the environmental fate of PPCPs in Utah waterways and their potential impact on aquatic and human life. Support on Utah Public Radio for Creating Tomorrow is provided in part by our members and the College of Engineering at Utah State University, home of the Utah Water Research Lab. Learn more at engineering.usu.edu. Utah's population is growing by 2060. It's estimated that our current 3 million will be 6 million. We will have doubled. Uh, that, uh, combined with the fact that Utah is one of the driest states in the nation, uh, causes some concern. Will we have enough water for those uh, 6 million people? And uh, what about water quality? Many other factors. And so four years ago, Governor Herbert uh, uh, tasked the Governor's Water Strategy Advisory Team with uh, coming up with a strategy. They've now released that, recommended state water strategy, delivered that to the Governor and the conversation continues. We have uh, two of the co-chairs, uh, Tim Hawks and Warren Peterson. They, along with Tage Flint, are uh, have co-chaired this uh, Governor's Water Strategy Advisory Team. You can join this conversation at 800-826-1495 or upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, I'll direct uh, this first uh, to uh, Warren Peterson. Um, included in uh, the strategy, the 50-year the plan, uh, are a couple of uh, big water projects, the Lake Powell Pipeline Project and the Bear River uh, Water uh, Project. Uh, I always like to frame this by going back to my childhood in the Uinta Basin. Um, I well remember, and this was, I came to this after the fact, but uh, I well remember some grousing from long-timers about the Central Utah Project. That, hey, they're... they're they're sucking our water away from the Uinta Basin and uh, taking it to the higher population centers. I hear that complaint for both of these uh, pr proposed projects. There are some environmental concerns as well. What, what are you hearing about these two projects? Well, we're hearing a great deal. You're, you're, 
terminology, I often heard it referred to as stealing our water. Stealing our I've heard that too, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. So big projects uh, with all of the big impacts that go with them have to be balanced against need. So the, the approach taken in the strategy suggests, first of all, conservation. See what we can do with conservation. See how far that takes us. But it takes 30-plus years to to go from conception to water delivery when you turn the tap on the waters there on these major projects. So the two big ones that are very controversial, both of them are in legislative, uh, have legislative approval. They're, they are the legislative enactments make them part of the policy of Utah. Those are the Bear River Project and the Lake Powell Pipeline Project. And as you might imagine, with 41 members on this team, advisory team, we had people on both sides of that issue. And to come, to, that's probably of all the issues in here, the hardest one to come to consensus on. The consensus seems to be we need to look at all other available sources before we go to the big projects. But you can't begin working on the project when someday 30 years hence we say, oh, we need water. We have to start now. We have to plan now. We have to look at the alternatives and do the economic feasibility analyses, principally, which is our best option from an economic standpoint, which is our best option from an environmental standpoint. And they're very complex questions. So the the report doesn't say we should do one or the other, but what it says is we should engage a process to carefully evaluate all of our alternatives, including those two pipeline projects. Hmm. Tim Hawks, uh, of course, water issues get political very fast, and then in this case where you're potentially moving water from one population center to a larger population center can get very, very political. Um, I don't know if there's been any discussion about how you smooth that over, how you try to get a statewide consensus on, on this. Well, it's been said that water flows uphill to money, uh, and, and that remains a that, that that remains a challenge with water. And I think you alluded to one of the real challenges and one of the real problems associated with what, what we call trans basin diversions, and that is that the costs the costs are borne by one watershed to send benefits to the other. That's true for the populations involved. It's also true for the uh, natural systems, one of which you know, loses water and the other which gains sort of an augmented or additional supply of water. So I think those are part of the trade-offs that um, Warren was suggesting need to be carefully evaluated as we um, as we look at these water projects. And the, certainly the, 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 the nature, the tenor of the recommendations is to keep these options open just because we don't know what the future looks like. We do know that these are some places where we, where the state has at least the right to, uh, to some, to some, to some water. Uh, I do think one's interesting, and this tying back just a little bit to conservation, uh, the Bear River project is kind of an interesting one. Initial projections, there were some initial projections that thought that that project would need to be developed by this year, by 2017. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those projections were then pushed to 2045, uh, and then just earlier this year there was an announcement that it was pushed from 2045 to indefinite. Well, what's the driver of that? The driver of that is... Uh, is basically what we're seeing on the conservation side is pushing the anticipated uh, need for that project out further and further. And I, I think it's true for everybody, given the the costs, and I mean economic costs, environmental costs, and other costs associated with these large projects, um, most people that I know view them as an absolute 
uh, last resort, uh, and we don't want to build them. We don't want to have to do them. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, it'd be irresponsible, I think, to take them completely off the table or say that we're never going to need them, and that's why um, the strategy strikes the balance that it does on that. I want to follow up on that. Too. So now out to indefinite. So does that mean that conservation, if we keep ramping that up, can 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 completely prevent the need for big projects like these? Most people think that sooner or later, if the, and, and it, it makes a certain amount of sense, intuitive sense, if, if the population continues to grow and forget doubling, eventually going to triple or maybe quadruple, uh, sooner or later that demand curve uh, crosses a point where, where you have to have it. So people think, well, at some point you, you may have to have it. Uh, I guess there's, there's certainly some theoretical paths forward where uh, you might never, might never need them. Uh, but what does that future look like, and what are the costs, uh, the trade-offs necessary uh, to get there? And that's, you know, that's that's the tough question. Hmm. In me, a desert like this one, without doing something dramatically different, uh, you can't grow indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me direct this first to Warren Peterson. Uh, there, uh, I've heard some environmental concerns. Uh, for example, the Bear River uh, project. This uh, Bear River flows into the Great Salt Lake. If you were to divert, uh, I guess, enough water from the Bear River, it, that would seriously affect Great Salt Lake. Yes, it would. Those are the kind of balances we need to look at. Even today, if you, if I'm flying out later today, and the flight path will take me over the north arm of the Great Salt Lake, looking at the amount of exposed lake bed now because of the low, the low level of that lake, it's, it's unsettling. It's very unsettling. So we we have to look at those sort of things if we divert the water to human use and, and don't take care of our streams and lakes and such, we're, we're in trouble. Uh, staying with Horton Peterson for this one, uh, then I'll give Tim Hawks a chance to respond as well. One of uh, Number nine here on, on questions and recommendations, what is the framework for Utah water law and policy? How will stakeholders modernize it? Um, so water law is uh, it, it, it's pretty antiquated. It's uh, um, but as I mentioned, gets very political, very heated, very loaded. Um, how do you how do you modernize? How do you update uh, water law successfully? Um, maybe I push back a bit on your characterization, Tom. Uh-huh. Uh It water law the the prior appropriation system provides certainty. And there's things three things I've said the market does not like: cost, uncertainty, and delay. So if we take a, a well-established body of property rights, namely water rights, there is even recognized in our state constitution. When we start shifting those foundation stones, we're going to have some serious instability in our water allocation system. But what water law has done, it's for, for those who follow closely in this somewhat arcane area, it changes every year. We update it. We, we make modifications. Uh, the legislature has a, a few uh, a few, and I say few advisedly. There used to be many water people familiar with water issues in the legislature. Now they're very few. But even, even so, we're still making changes every year to try to modernize and update our water law. But that prior appropriation system in the arid states is is critical. And frankly, Tom, it's not just some of the eastern states that have had an abundance of water have looked at our our system of water allocation, our our priority appropriation system, and, and are replicating that. 
to protect water resources in their states. So it's it's an effective system, but it does need to be responsive to the times. And I think we're, we've got a good group of people that are working on that. But again, that needs to be a collaborative process with stakeholders at the table, as we had in this developing this water strategy. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But uh, I guess you, uh, um, updating it. What 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 are the updates that are that are recommended uh, by the by the strategy here? Tim has mentioned a few already. One one is that we need to look at some probably split season uses. So a farmer who's getting a good first and second crop and, and the water supply of the run of the river just doesn't make a third crop pay off, can say, all right, I'm going to stop at second crop and I'm going to sell off the extra water that I would use for that third crop, let someone keep it in a reservoir up high on the mountain where we can keep it in reserve for next year. So that's an example. And that, that split season use currently doesn't, Utah law doesn't apply for that, but there are groups now working on drafting that sort of provision. Representative Hawks is involved in in one of those. So those are the kind of things. Another thing I might mention is that we have the good fortune of having a very good land-grant university. And the the amount of research that goes in, is, is oriented toward water issues, needs to increase. And a lot of the good ideas for how to modify water law and so on come out of our our research universities i think we need to put more emphasis there but it needs to be a balanced discussion so that it's not a case of winners and losers but a but improvement for everyone as we adjust and update our our water law structure let's take another break when we come back i want to talk about uh, this very important question included in the uh, 50-year water plan in what ways will weather and a changing climate impact future water supply and demand Um, There's some very important considerations in how water will be delivered and snowpack and uh, those sorts of things. And then how are we going to respond to that? That and much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Gallery Delery at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan. Featuring triple certified coffee, espresso bar, and offering grab-and-go food items Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Information at caffeibis.com. And also the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau presenting Living History at the American West Heritage Center, featuring mountain men, pioneers, and turn-of-the-century farmers. Activities include pony rides, tomahawk throwing, and ragdoll making. Information is available at explorelogan.com. Free trade has been the way of the global economy for much of the past couple of decades, not without some flaws, though. By focusing on the winners from trade and ignoring the losers, I think we've created the situation that that we're in today. I'm Kai Rizdal. The rise and fall, question mark, of globalization. That's next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about water. Water, of course, life-giving, very important. 
And the governor's water strategy advisory team looked out to 2060 uh, to uh, compile a a new 50-year water plan. 2060 is an important date. That's when projections say that uh, Utah's population will double from the current uh, 3 million. Uh, And the recommended state water strategy has been delivered to to the governor. The conversation continues, including here. And we have with us uh, two of the co-chairs of the commission, Tim Hawks and Warren Peterson. You're welcome to join this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. I'll direct this question to Tim Hawks. This is from the executive summary of the strategy, the plan. Uh, The challenge of water is magnified by climate projections from the state climatologists that show a significant decrease in Utah's snowpack, which presently provides more annual water storage capacity than all of Utah's human-made reservoirs combined. So that illustrates a potential problem in which uh, we may have a similar amount of water that the nature provided in a different way, which can cause problems. Yeah, that's right. Um, if I may, I'm actually going to jump back and uh, address just briefly a perspective on the, the previous question, Okay. Uh, which which has to do with, with state water law. I, I agree with Warren that it really is it does provide the necessary framework and the certainty essential to fairly allocate water, and that's key. One of the real challenges, I think, and this is one that the, the strategy gets into a little bit, is, uh, you know, from an environmental standpoint, the problem is that the environment shows up, if you imagine a game of cards, when all the cards have already been divvied up. And so uh, they, they don't have any cards in their hand to play. So the, the real challenge is how do you, how do you, enable them to be players at the table along with other competing uses. And I think the answer in many cases lies in what Warren suggested, which are things like split-season leases, which really allow for resources to be shared. The equivalent might be, from my analogy, is sharing the card. We're both going to use it. We're both going to be able to look at it. So I just wanted to add that perspective on that last question. In terms of climate change, it really is a game-changer. Um, I think there's good news and there's bad news on that front. The good news is, and Warren alluded to this earlier, uh, our farmers and ranchers in this state were really used to dealing with wide variations in climate. We just are. Our reservoir storage system really in the state reflects that. Uh, The the need to sort of uh, save water in wet years so that we can use it in dry. So we, we have some natural ability uh, to, to adapt. The, the problem is, is that if we lose our snowpack, which is our most significant reservoir, uh, it, it, it's really all bets are off. I mean, if we, com- if we completely move to a rainfall pattern, the infrastructure that we would have to build simply to maintain our existing water supply is staggering. The costs associated with it are staggering. And so that's just something, it's kind of a game changer. It's something we've got to think about, something we definitely have to be concerned about and we have to watch. Um, But it's, uh, you know, part of our water strategy is pray for, it's not pray for rain, it's pray for snow. Mm. Uh, Warren Peterson, what would you say to that? That's, uh, you know, prayer is good, but uh, what what if it happens that the snowpack reduces enough, it transitions to rain, and uh, then we have to incur all those costs to, to change our infrastructure? Maybe I'll extend this this metaphor a bit further, and you should pray as though it depends on the Almighty, and then work as though it depended on you, because we need to learn to be adaptable. Robert Gillies, the state uh, climate or state meteorologist, was one of our members, and it's fair to say that he was pretty passionate about making sure that this issue was 
was on the table and, and was discussed, and it was, I think, probably as as active a debate as the as the big water projects. In fact, tied into the, the big water projects. If you build big water projects based on a notion that you're going to have a certain pattern of snowfall, and that snowfall changes, and you've committed all your resources to infrastructure that isn't adaptive, you have a pretty serious issue. So it's it's a it's a big one. And if you look at our river systems in Utah, water is allocated amongst the various users, often on what time of year the water is available in, in the river system. And that changes significantly if you change the snowpack. So we're going to have to reinvent ourselves pretty significantly if we see a weather pattern emerge that has more, much more rain and much less snow. It's, it's a little frightening, actually. I want to go to um, an email. It's come in from Glenn. Uh, you can email us as well. Love to get your perspective on this. Upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. Here's what uh, Glenn says. I grew up on a farm in eastern Utah. I also dabbled in farming with two separate operations. During the 1980s and to a lesser degree, now farmers participated in the Colorado uh, Salinity Control and the Central Utah Project. The goal was to reduce the salinity of agricultural runoff. Indeed, it was to reduce the runoff altogether. Both my family farm and my subsequent subsequent endeavors participated in the salinity control projects and purchasing mechanized irrigation systems. One of the quirks of the system was a stipulation that one water share was to be allocated to one acre. We all signed long-term contracts to comply. I've witnessed neighbors who have been very efficient in their water use and been able to actually spread water between two systems adequately. Uh, in effect, using one share of water for two acres. This stipulation is just one of many that I uh, took some umbrage with, but this one seems to be important and could be a productivity and efficiency improvement if it was reassessed. This is a stipulation from the NRCS, who are the designers and overseers of individual projects. Just a thought, says uh, Glenn. I'm not sure Tim Hawks or Warren Peterson, uh, either one wants to tackle that one? I'll just jump in quick on it. I, I, I think it illustrates a little bit of costs and benefits, right? So that was a program that I think has been fairly effective, and Warren may have a perspective on this, in terms of reducing salinity. Um, one of the consequences, at least in the Colorado, is that in many cases exactly what the, the, the listener just said occurred, which is if somebody can come in and they can spread their water over more acres or they can, where they were getting, you know, uh, one, one cutting, they get two, or where they were getting two, they get four cuttings of alfalfa. They have substantially increased their consumption of water. So, yes, there's been a salinity benefit, but there's also been a, a net uh, loss of water. I think in the state that was, that was allowed in some systems because that's, that's the Colorado. That's water that goes downstream, and so it was kind of it, it was allowed to happen. As Warren said, many of our systems uh, are terminal, quite frankly, even including the Colorado, but they're in state, and so if you have in, uh, increased consumption upstream, uh, it, it's actually just robbing Peter to pay Paul. Mm-hmm. Warren Peterson, your thoughts on Glenn's comment? Uh, yeah, Glenn, Glenn raises a very important issue, and Tim's correct. In the Colorado, the, the salinity control problem was found to be the most cost-effective way to keep salt out of the Colorado. A large desalinization plant was built at Yuma, Arizona, to take water out of the Colorado, or take salt out of the water before it goes to to Mexico to to help us honor the Mex the treaty with Mexico, the plant sat idle for many years because there were more cost effective ways to keep salt out of the river, and the cost effective way in Utah was to use these sprinkler systems instead of flood irrigation 
because the flood irrigation would flush salts into the river. Now, a former state engineer said that it's it's genetic with some folks. They think they're being efficient, so therefore they get to use these sprinkler systems to spread water over larger acreage. Well, back to the comment about stealing water, those downstream would say, you're stealing our water. You're using more water. You're spreading it out beyond the acres that you are allowed to irrigate because the water rights not defined in terms of number of gallons used alone, but also in the number of acres because if you increase the acreage, you increase consumption, and you therefore decrease the water left in the stream for the fellow downstream who probably has a better growing season, probably has a more efficient system. So it's a great example of how when we reallocate water, uh, when, we, when we make changes in a system, we, we're not just being more efficient or less efficient, we're also reallocating water, and there are winners and losers in that kind of a process. It's a great illustration of the complexity of dealing with these issues. Tom, could I, could I lead into a related topic? Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, one of the recommendations, strong recommendations in the report, in, in many different sections, talks about basin planning councils. And the purpose of a basin planning council fits in, illustrates this situation well. If you have all of the stakeholders around the table saying, all right, you're going to make a major change in the way water is used in this system, who does it affect? Are we truly being efficient? Or is are we calling something that's really inefficient efficiency because we're measuring it only at the farm level instead of at the river basin level? And one of the things we've had only on an ad hoc basis in Utah are basin councils where stakeholders can sit down, look at the effect of those kind of significant changes, and see if we're really making gains or losses. Now, you put that in the context of saving a viable Great Salt Lake, you can see it would be very important. And if you're the last user, if, if you're at the end of the river, at the end of the ditch, <laughs> and someone upstream wants to spread water and consume more water that would otherwise be making up your water right, it would be good to have at least have the chance to sit across the table and uh, hopefully in a civil manner explain the downside of those kind of propositions. Mm. Uh, I want to uh, uh, turn to, uh, to Tim Hawks on, uh, on, on this one. Um, I noticed a quote from one of the team members, Representative Gerald Briscoe. Uh, he mentioned that there's been a lot of attention uh, paid to air quality. Uh, there have been marches, there have been debates. Uh, uh, people get, a, get a up in arms, I guess, because it's very immediate. Uh, he's, and he says that's important. But he goes on to say that uh, he, he wonders, he wishes that there were more attention paid to, to water, water issues. Yeah, well, he has a good point, and the reality is I think a lot of us take sort of a cheap and reliable uh, source of water. We just we simply take it for granted. I, I traveled recently in Asia, and I was struck, which is a wet place. It rains a lot. I was struck by how valuable just being able to, you know, you have to buy a bottle of water to be sure that it's, that, you know, it's not going to make you sick. Um, that's something we take for granted, uh, the fact that we can have these green landscapes in the deserts, things that we take for granted. So uh, I, it, it typically people don't react until their ox is gored in some immediate and dramatic way. The reality is if we continue to starve the Great Salt Lake of water, we could see uh, an air quality catastrophe, an, eco- an ecological catastrophe. And that's happened in other parts of the world where they've starved terminal lakes 
places like the Aral Sea uh, and Lake Urmia in Iran, uh, you get these, uh, even Owens Valley in California, these incredible air quality things. That has an immediate effect, and then that triggers a response. Um, but usually the response is extremely expensive, uh, both environmentally and in terms of money, to try to redress that after the fact. We just have uh, about three minutes left. I want to fit in this email from James. Uh, James says, groundwater is a huge reservoir if water, uh, of water for Utah. Many valleys are over-allocated and being radically drawn down. The Escalante Valley near Enterprise and Parowan Valley are two examples. Does Utah have the political will to reduce groundwater pumping? Has the water plan addressed uh, pumped groundwater storage on a widespread basis? The answer is yes on both both counts. Uh, Utah has a statute that allows local water users to get together and develop plans to prevent mining of groundwater. That's it was developed principally with the Escalante area in mind. It's working. The folks down there put together a, a very, uh, it, it, I think it's a very ingenious plan that they have put together. But if they don't, then the state engineer has the authority to come in and cut back on on groundwater pumping. And we have to keep in mind that groundwater doesn't exist separate from surface water. They're interconnected, and it's you, you have to understand the complexity. You have to understand the science. Um, I'll, I'll defer to Tim, but I, let me add this, this thought, that we need to talk a lot more about using good science when we make water decisions. Uh, Tim Hawks, your, your comment. No, I concur with that exactly. Uh, we need to have the best information available. There are information gaps. I think we're closing those gaps, but it's going to it's going to take time, and we absolutely have to have that happen. We also have to have the local decision making that uh, Warren alluded to, and that's really kind of a positive note in the groundwater context and in, in all the contexts where we show that people can come together and and make these tough decisions. Tim Hawks, are there are there innovations? We've talked about a couple in the previous in the program. Are there innovations, new technologies that can help that uh, maybe give us some hope here? Well, certainly uh, seeing some metering on the secondary water, I think there's going to be continuing advances in the way uh, water is used by agriculture to be more efficient as far as that goes. I think there are legal innovations like uh, the aforementioned split season leases, and I think our law does need to be changed to be more flexible to allow for kind of those dovetailed uses. So it's uh, it's got to be a little bit of a Chinese menu. There's going to be a lot of uh, changes moving forward, but uh, I'm encouraged that we we're starting to see some of those solutions come into better focus, and it's going to take uh, all of those and more uh, to solve our challenges moving forward. Just have about two minutes, so I'll give uh, you uh, one minute each, starting with Warren Peterson. Uh, you're, you're, you're big, I guess, looking to the near future. This is a 50-year plan, but looking to the near future, where, where, do you think, where do you hope the conversation goes from here? We need to start getting state agencies uh, to the resources and, and mandates to, to look at some of these issues. We need to have uh, water industry groups. We need to have citizen involvement, and we need to have university involvement. Uh, Utah State University can play a key role. We, we were benefited greatly by uh, Dr. Joanna Enterwada being part of this process, and she really illustrated well the role of a good research institution working with us on water issues. That, that's where I'd go in the near future. And uh, same question to you, Tim Hawks. Well, I'm really encouraged. Uh, let me just mention on the environmental front, uh, you know, you asked one of the surprises, and I think one of the surprises for me uh, when I started about 13 years ago working in water conservation from an environmental perspective is in-stream flow is a dirty word. 
Uh, ironically, in this debate and discussion, water for the environment was, was one of the least controversial topics we addressed. And, and so I think, uh, again, one of the things that I see us working on, there's a lot of conversations ongoing right now, is how do we encourage agricultural uh, efficiency, true, true efficiency, uh, and, uh, and also how do we uh, preserve and protect flows for the environment. So I mean, those are some, some conversations that are ongoing, and I think we're going to continue to have those discussions, and uh, I'm encouraged about where we're headed. Well, we thank you both uh, very much. Uh, the uh, recommended state water strategy is now uh, out and it's uh, to the governor. It's compiled by the governor's water strategy advising team and facilitated by Envision Utah. And uh, we've had with us uh, two of the three co-chairs, Tim Hawks and Warren Peterson. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Good discussion. And uh, tomorrow we'll have an interesting uh, discussion as a part of uh, the Year of the Arts, USU's Year of the Arts. We'll be talking with Patrick Doherty. Uh, he uses minimal tools and simple techniques of bending, interweaving, and fastening together sticks. Creates works of art inseparable with nature and the landscape. And we're going to talk about his work uh, tomorrow. He'll be in studio. I hope you'll join us then. Thanks for joining us today. Next Radio Lab, the story of a chimp who never got the chance to be a chimp. It's called Lucy Growing Up Human. She quickly learned to hold her own bottle. At two months, her eyes would focus. A chimpanzee daughter in a psychotherapist's family. At three months, she was trying to climb out of her crib to go to people. She was so responsive to being looked at, stroke. Tragic tales of species confusion on the next Radio Lab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan.